James 4, I want to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 6, but I, I want to read the whole context. Hear God's word. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Amen. Father God, we submit our hearts to your word. It is our desire to delight in it, not to kick against it. And I pray that you would help us to learn and to grow and to be sanctified by your word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read you a, a little dialogue that uh, went on in a small claims court, you know, the kind that uh, they televise on the TV. Your Honor, this... And I won't read the uh, expletive uh, name that this uh, lady gives. This blankety-blank dumped three tons of gravel in my yard, and I want them to pay for it. Cost me 200 bucks to hire those guys to haul it out of there, and that was after I told them that they could keep the gravel. This dumb schmuck ruined my yard and caused me to miss two days of work, and now he owes me. I figure it cost me about $700, and I want my money. What's this about, Mr. Hamilton? Well, Judge, I ain't saying I did it, and I ain't saying I didn't, but I think you need to be asking her why she keeps those junk cars out in front of her house and lets those kids of hers run crazy, and why she lets her dog bark all night, and who it was that ran the hose into my basement and put two feet of water down there. I didn't flood your crummy old basement, you jerk. You check your pipes, and even if I did, it would have been what you had coming for knocking down my fence and driving your car through my flower bed. And as the judge... Uh, rolls his eyes to the ceiling. Uh, the world's watching this TV show here, and it's actually going on live as he takes one issue amongst probably dozens and dozens that had poisoned these people against each other. And from the book that I got that from, the neighbors had taken sides and they kind of had fun for a while over what was going on. But it came to a place where nobody knew what in the world, how in the world to solve it, and so they go to court. This court didn't solve a thing. They settled one little dispute and one person was upset, and the other one was vindicated, and uh, the whole world that's watching knows full well uh, nothing's been solved. They're still going to be enemies, and they're still probably going to have this kind of fighting. And what James points out in this, in this passage here is that those kind of wars don't just occur out there in the world. Unfortunately, they occur in the church as well. They shouldn't be in the church, but they do. And let me read you some examples, and these are true examples in America uh, from recent years. Jane became so angry with her preacher husband that she threw an apple at him and broke his glasses. Then she grabbed a kitchen knife and chased him around the house. 
Now, in a better state of mind, she probably was embarrassed that she had done that, but she had gotten to a point where she just snapped and it was just too much for her to take. Uh, here's another true example. Bill, a deacon, angrily stormed out of a deacon's meeting, leading to much future unpleasantness in the church. All this was over a policy that he championed, but no one else agreed with. The work of God was set back for months as the congregation was forced to discipline Bill and work through divisive measures that he took in order to get even with those who had opposed his ideas. Here is another one. An elder named Tom angrily called the preacher a spotted toad and declared that he had been praying the minister would slip up so that he could get him. The effects of this outburst were so devastating that the entire congregation split. Now, we're dealing here with this morning with conflict management. How do you deal with conflicts that come up? And I don't want you to think that this is the only section that deals with conflict uh, in this passage. Um, uh, James is really fascinating the way it builds topic upon topic, and there's principles that are interwoven, that are dealt with earlier on. He's building a case, then he deals with the subject. And even while he's dealing with that subject, he'll bring up other principles, and he'll deal with another... So when you're trying to understand any given subject, you have to examine the whole book of James. Just like in the book of Proverbs, you've got to look all the way through. Well, the same is true with conflict resolution. The same was true of, of uh, the issue of uh, managing your tongue. Chapter 3 is where he focuses on the problem, and he hits the heart of the problem, but he's already dealt with the tongue quite a bit in chapters 1 and 2. So what I wanted to do, and I put that in your introduction, uh, I gave 10... Almost any book on conflict management is going to give 10 problems that people face. Uh, these are, are obstacles or pitfalls to managing problems. And I want to kind of trace the rest of the book just very, very briefly um, uh, before we get into our passage. <clears throat> the first one is a failure to have a servant's heart. We saw that James begins his whole book by modeling a servant's heart, and then you see that as an undercurrent throughout the book. Any person that's got a servant's heart is going to tend to approach life in a way that's going to avoid, uh, for example, a faith without works earlier on, or a tongue that destroys, or a pride that uh, tears other people down. Next issue that's uh, frequently a pitfall in conflict management is lack of patience. And it's pretty obvious. People who have a short fuse tend to have far more conflicts than people who don't have a short fuse. And so... If you haven't learned the lessons of patience in chapter 1, don't collect $200, don't advance, you know, go back on your Monopoly board to chapter 1 and learn that lesson all over again because if you haven't learned the lesson of patience, you're not going to effectively be implementing anything else that's in the book. This whole book is logically laid out. Another pitfall is a lack of passion for holiness. If you are, if you are motivated more by comfort than you are by holiness then it's very unlikely that you are going to try to resolve conflicts in a biblical fashion or confess your own faults to other people or that you're going to confront people when confrontation is necessary because it's not comfortable to do those types of things. Pursuing holiness is definitely not fun. Now, the end result is fun, but I tell you, sometimes the process getting to that end result is so painful that the Scripture likens it to crucifixion, which is one of the most painful deaths uh, that you could experience. And yet, Christ says you can't even call yourself a disciple if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, if you're not willing to crucify yourself. And so we have to be more concerned about holiness than we are about comfort. And if you've not learned the lessons of chapter 1, 
verses 2 through 18, God gives you a monopoly card that says, go back, go back and start over again until you've got these lessons down. Uh, the next obvious pitfall is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I've labeled that as prejudice, but literally it means judging a case before you know the facts. It's prejudging a situation. How many times have family and church conflicts arisen because people have assumed something to be true before they've examined the facts? Maybe somebody starts talking and they jump to conclusions about what that person mean, means before he's even finished, and they jump down that person's throat. And uh, so it's prejudging. It's not asking questions. A lot of problems and conflicts. In fact, that was true in our marriage early on. I learned I needed to ask more questions. Oh, that's what you mean. You know, I jumped to conclusions too quickly. And so prejudging obviously is a very important um, uh, principle. And if we have not dealt with that, we need to go back several spaces. Chapter 2 deals with a failure to have follow through. Uh, words without action. How many times do we frustrate our families and frustrate, you know, the church because we've committed to do something, but there's no follow through. And so what James talks about is words without action and, uh, uh, you know, a wisdom without action, a faith without works uh, needs to be brought to the plate in this discussion as well. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 deals with uncontrolled speech. And it's so obviously a pitfall, I don't even need to say anything about it. I think that's where a lot of people wrecking the pitfalls to come. But you can see how James is as intricately woven together as life is. Uh, life is complex. You can't just neatly divide it up. And you can't just neatly divide up James either. All of these principles weave together. Um, the seventh pitfall is a failure to deal with the motivational factors in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And so a person says, why do I fail? Why do I uh, keep uh, trying and keep trying and I can't uh, seem to get anywhere? Well, one of the things may be that you have not put off the old motivational factors and put on the new motivational factors that James has talked about. Hebrews talks about many other motivations aren't even mentioned here. Motivations that really energize us to pursue after righteousness and other negative motivations that draw us down into sin. And then in your outline, I mentioned two more in chapter 4, because next week we're going to look at those in their own right. Just We're not going to tie it in with conflict resolution. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're going to treat them in their own right. But pride and judgmental attitudes are so obviously related to the, the, the issues of, of um, conflict uh, resolution. I don't know how many conflicts I have witnessed that have stemmed from pride and could not be resolved because neither partner was willing to ask for forgiveness for what they had done until the other person made the move first, you know. Uh, pride can really destroy conflict resolution. And then, of course, judgmentalism is pretty obvious. So my point in bringing up the introduction is if you're trying to work on sanctification in this area, don't neglect the other principles in the book of James. We're getting to the heart of the issue here, and anytime he brings up his subject, and, and focuses on it, that's really the nub, the heart of the issue. And so chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, gets to the heart. Look at verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? And it's literally from in you. Uh, he's not talking here about blaming Joe or Nancy. Okay, who started this fight? You know, trying to ascertain that. Uh, he's, he's talking about a deeper issue, and the next phrase shows that. He shows where is it coming from? Here's his answer. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? 
He's not talking about members of the congregation. Uh, any commentary will tell you that. He's talking about the members of your body. And so one um, dictionary gives the meaning of this term, gives two meanings. There's a secondary meaning of musical instruments that's taken from parts of the body. Uh, but that obviously doesn't fit here. Uh, the, the primary meaning, though, is body parts. Uh, another dictionary says, quote, parts of the human body. Now, that literal rendering may seem a little odd at first, but I think it's very, very important that we understand how the parts of our body, the arms, the legs, the, the facial muscles, your tongue, how they are related to this uh, temptation to sin. Now, let's just take this a step at a time. First step, we need to recognize that these church wars come from sinful desires within us that are warring with something. Second step is those inward wars always manifest themselves in outward wars. And then the third step is this orientation to desire is so deeply ingrained within ourselves that it's become a habit. That's what's meant by in your members, in your members. Uh, it's in habituated in your body. And let me just illustrate this a little bit. Uh, many people have stumbled over Paul's expression in one place where he says, sin dwells in your members, and literally in your body parts. And people have said, well, doesn't that contradict Paul elsewhere? Because Paul has made it very clear that the body is not sinful. And he's made it very clear that sin is not something that's out there floating around like a virus that you can catch. Sin is a choice. Sin is a thought or a word or an action of a person. And so how in the world can sin dwell in our members? Well, Paul points out that sin can very really dwell within our members when it becomes a habit. It's something that we do without even, uh, without even thinking. And that's what a habit is, by the way. It's something that you do without having to think about. It's a pattern routinely done so that our nervous system, that's our body, is, as it were, programmed to respond without thinking. So, if it wasn't for habits, all you could do is lie around all day. Um, you know, it'd take you all day to figure out how to move your fingers and coordinate your muscles to make your fingers do anything useful, to tie your shoelaces, to walk, you know, uh, to get the spoon of food into your mouth instead of into your ear, right? Uh, little kids, you watch them, uh, these babies, it takes them a long time to learn those habits that we do without even thinking. The reason we can do them without thinking is because these are habits now, they dwell within our members. They're just things that we are programmed to be able to do uh, habitually. Now, it's, it's a great thing for a righteous action to become habituated, where it's just the most natural thing in the world for you to do it. Here, it's sin that has become habituated, and so it may be a situation where you have tried and tried not to get angry at some uh, person, maybe a neighbor or somebody or a spouse, um, and, and you keep telling, I'm not going to get angry. And all they have to do is look at you in that certain way or give that certain word, and you blow up and out come those words, and you're kicking yourself. Why in the world does that happen? Well, it's because that has become so ingrained into your nervous system from habitual uh, doing the same thing. You do it without thinking just as surely as a person who is a martial artist who has uh, <coughs> practiced and practiced, you know, blocking blows. Somebody comes up to him and, you know, catches him blindsided and, and throws a punch without even thinking. You know, he can block. He can block that punch. Why? Because it's become habituated. It's dwelling in his members. 
Now, with regard to sin, uh, Paul says sin has become habituated. It dwells in our members, but James 4.1 goes one step back of sin, and it's describing here desires for pleasure that war in your members, in your body parts. And James is giving us a key here to understanding what are the dynamics that enter into these wars, the church wars, family wars, the conflicts that occur. The outward conflict occurs because there is an inward conflict of desire that has become habituated. It's already part of your members, your body framework. Okay, let's move on. It's interesting that the Greek word (coughs) that James uses for desires for pleasure is the Greek word hedonis. Have you ever heard of the word hedonism? Well, the Greek philosophy of hedonism is this word. It's described by this word hedonis. And you say, well, what's hedonism? Well, hedonism is the belief that pleasure was the ultimate criteria for doing something and that people would not be motivated and should not be motivated to do noble things without first satisfying several basic desires or pleasure principles. They said you had to feel good about yourself before you would be motivated to do other lofty things. Now, does that sound strangely and suspiciously like something that has infected the church today? It very much is. It is an old version of the self-esteem, self-love, self-image, self-worth movement. And so here is the ultimate irony. The very thing that Christian psychologists have foisted upon the church and says, you need to pursue after this if you're going to be holy, is the thing that James says is fighting against the spirit and the spirit against it. That's exactly what he is saying. The very thing that the modern church is desperately trying to get people to put on and they're trying to put on themselves is the thing James says we must put off. Self-esteem, self-love, self-image, self-worth are rife in the American church. It is pagan hedonism. The psychologists, uh, Adler and Maslow, have popularized this with their pyramid of needs. I learned this in school. You probably all learned it in school. You've... Uh, start with the physical needs first, and then the safety and security needs, and then love and belongingness needs, and then self-esteem needs, and then on top are the self-actualization needs. And each one of those needs were the, <clears throat> were the desires or pleasures, the hedones, that the Greeks talked about. Hedones was simply a buzzword amongst the Greeks, just like self-esteem and self-actualization are buzzwords in modern society. And I'm sure that James gave these folks quite a surprise because what he is taking on here is the prevailing view in the Greek culture back then. Now, it wasn't the prevailing view amongst the Platonists, and there were some others uh, who rejected this idea, but the prevailing view at that time was that we needed to achieve these pleasures or these needs in our lives. They taught that if those are not satisfied, people will not be satisfied and they will fight. But if those needs are satisfied, people will be satisfied and there won't be any fighting. And James says, you got it all backwards. You got it completely backwards. He says, it is precisely because you are always wanting to satisfy those so-called needs that you've got these conflicts. Now, there's many, many examples that we won't be able to delve into, but Jesus, when he was talking with Mary, uh, Mary, Martha was fussing about the fact that Mary wasn't helping her with the dishes. And Jesus, in effect, says to her, Martha, just leave those dishes. They can be dealt with later. I want you to spend time with me right now. He's not putting down housework. He's not doing anything like that. He's saying, that can wait. And here's the interesting thing that he says about needs. 
But only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part. Concerning the physical needs and the security needs, Jesus said at another time, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be, what? Added to you. They come afterwards, don't they? And if you start with those, if that's your driving concern, if that's your focus, Christ says you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be able to enter into what you're pursuing after. And that's why, uh, even though the book, uh, His Needs, Her Needs, does have some very interesting stuff, and especially in terms of of discussion questions, the basic premise of that book is wrong. Now, I've handed it out to some of you guys just in terms of, you know, these are great questions to get discussion going, but don't get the idea that the basic premise of that book is is good. It is not. Uh, Those motivations uh, need to be oriented toward the lordship of Christ. Now, there are Christian writers now who say the opposite, and they're, they're confusing Christians. They're saying that the only way you will be able to submit to the lordship of Christ is if you, first of all, pursue after these, these felt needs. Okay? They say that you'll never love God until you have these other needs met. Now, let me give you some examples. Walter Trobisch says, you cannot get to self-actualization, which he mistakenly uh, likens to love for God. It's quite distinct from love for God. But you can't get to self-actualization until you meet the earlier needs, like level four, self-esteem. He says, quote, you cannot love your neighbor. You cannot love God until you first love yourself. Without self-love, there can be no love for others. What, What does that do to Christ's statement when Christ said, no one ever yet hated his own flesh? Paul said the same thing. Christ says the problem with us is we have too much love for self. Not that we need to learn how to love ourselves. Uh, Larry Crabb falls into the same trap. He says, in order to be well-adjusted, you must reach the stage of self-actualization. In order to reach that stage, you must pass through the other four stages first. Another author speaks of, quote, a consuming desire to take in from their world, to take in love, comfort, approval, protection, reassurance, adulation, and when those are not achieved, we'll be maladjusted. Okay, that is nothing short of the Greek, ancient Greek teaching of hedonese, hedonism. A good book that criticizes the self-esteem movement is written by Jay Adams. It's called The Biblical View of Self-Esteem. There's another good book written by a lady, if you don't like Jay Adams' style, that's called Christ Esteem. In other words, we gain our esteem, our favor, our sense of security, our sense of value from Christ. I thought the best critique, though, came from Calvin and Hobbes, my all-time favorite comic strip. <clears throat> and uh, obviously, this, the, the guy who wrote this comic strip, he, he pokes fun at the self-esteem movement all the time. It must just appear ludicrous to him. But Hobbes asks Calvin, aren't you supposed to be doing your homework now? Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework's bad for my self-esteem. It is? Sure. It sends a message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers makes me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself the way I am. (laughs) Knowing Calvin, that's quite something, you know. (laughs) Hobbes asks, your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus? And, And Calvin says, please, let's call it informationally impaired. You don't want to hurt my self-esteem. <laughs> well, James is taking head-on the movement of self-esteem, and he is saying that this movement has brought nothing but frustration and nothing but conflict. And I want to move to Roman numeral 2 to show the reason for that frustration. Verse 2 begins with desire 
thwarted. You lust and do not have. Now, this is not necessarily sexual lust. It could include that, but it can include any want, any desire. In the Greek or in the English, the word lust can have that meaning. And the NIV, I think, is a little clearer. It says, you want something, but you don't get it. It could be anything that you want. You want respect. You want, uh, you want um, you know, more uh, money. You're not satisfied till you get more and more of, of something. Maybe um, you want somebody to say something nice about you. But whatever it is that it takes to make you feel good about yourself, you are going to be deprived of that something at some point in your life. It's guaranteed. It's just the way life works. And before we go on to see the effects of not getting what you want, I want to point out that if you start with needs, and you can read desires there, you're bound to be frustrated because as soon as people stop giving you the strokes, what happens? You feel all bent out of shape again. Your self-esteem is in jeopardy because your self-esteem is dependent upon other people, what they think of you, what they say about you, what they do to you. And the moment their actions change then immediately you're going to uh, be frustrated. And so ironically, the self-esteem movement leads to constant frustration. And let me point out that if you train your little children that you immediately gratify every desire and every want that they have, you are setting them up for failure because you're not training them for real life. Real life always is going to deprive you. You lust and do not have. There isn't a person upon the face of the earth who has lusted for something and who hasn't been frustrated and not been able to get it, right? So we need to even, in terms of the training of our children, make sure that we are not setting them up for failure. Now, James then points out that this frustration leads to use and abuse of others. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, whether he's talking about metaphorical murder, that's what the NIV study Bible says, hatred, uh, anger, or whether it's literal murder, what James is saying is this frustration is going to come out. It's going to explode in some way because you're going to want to do something to the person who has frustrated your desires, if that's the way your heart has been oriented. And so it may be manipulation, verbal abuse, physical abuse, or like Cain who killed his brother Abel. It may be literal murder that eventually uh, comes out. Uh, but in, in any case, he's describing things from a human perspective. How do we observe what happens? Okay, there's frustration, and when they can't get it, then they try to do something to the person in order to make sure that they get it. What happens next? Step three, you've taken the action. You're still not getting your desires met. It leaves you even more frustrated. Now, you might think that if only I could get the majority of the strokes being good strokes, that I would be satisfied with that. It just doesn't work that way. If your satisfaction comes in being stroked by other people, it is guaranteed you will be frustrated even if 99.9% .9 of the things you want are being achieved. All it takes is one bad stroke and immediately your frustrations are going to kick in. It's just the way things work. If you're oriented toward the flesh. <clears throat> and so uh, because orientation is... Uh, towards self-satisfaction, apart from 100% satisfaction of needs, wants, desires, self-esteem, you cannot be happy. And that means God, if He is not the source of our self, uh, of our satisfaction, or uh, any diminishment of Haydenace is going to reinforce conflict. So James gives the third stage, you fight and war. Now you might make up, you might kiss, but it's only a temporary truce. 
Because again, your orientation is not toward crucifying your flesh. It's toward enhancing and feeding that monster of hedonase. God's ways are not conducive to self-esteem, and the self-esteem movement has led people to immaturity, definitely not to maturity. In fact, Christ, in his parable of the sower, you remember the different seed, the seed was cast on different kinds of soils. There was seed that was cast into the, into the, um, the weeds, and it says it, the, the plant gets choked up. It doesn't grow up. And he says, he likens that to people who have the word of God choked off and it doesn't grow. They never mature. And he gives as his reason, reason that they are governed by hedonase, by pleasures of this life. He says you'll never grow in maturity. It chokes that off. Now, if you have bought into the modern psychological lie of the self-esteem movement, let me give you two quotes here that show the logical end result. And this first one is a man who appears on the Minerth Meyer uh, show. And in case you don't uh, know, uh, it's definitely not recommended uh, by me. But he said this, Depression always has a loss of self-esteem in the foreground. Actually, before I read that, let me point out, I agree 100% with these psychologists that this frustrating pursuit of self-esteem uh, does lead to depression. But the solution for depression is not to give more self-esteem, it's to point people to Christ-esteem that nobody can take away, where you get your sense of satisfaction, your sense of security from Christ. But in any case, here's this guy's advice as to how to put a person on the road to self-esteem. Depression always has a loss of self-esteem in the foreground. Be slow to direct a depressed person to the scriptures. No preaching. I would recommend a recess from church if there is preaching done in the church. That's from an evangelical. He is recognizing that hedonase does not get strokes from the Bible. <laughs> and so he's saying, you know, the only solution here is let's back off from the Bible for a while, not get too much exposure, and definitely don't get exposure to preaching, especially Phil Kaiser's preaching. <laughs> too much sin, you know. But... Uh, People are eating this up like candy. It just blows my mind. Let me, let me read that again. Depression always has a loss of self-esteem in the foreground. Be slow to direct the depressed person to the scriptures. No preaching. I would recommend a recess from church if there is preaching done in the church. And here's a quote from Robert Schuller, and you'd expect it from him because he's a liberal, doesn't really believe the Bible. But his logic makes sense. This is from his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. He says, once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner... It is doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ. Now, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Until you see how bad you are, you won't see your need for grace, right? But he says the opposite. He says, once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can honestly accept saving grace God offers in Christ. Instead, he calls for a new reformation which is focused on the sacred right of every person to self-esteem. He goes on, if you want to know why Schuler smiles on television, if you want to know why I make people laugh once in a while, I'm giving them sounds and strokes, sounds and strokes. It's strategy. People who don't trust need to be stroked. People who are born with a negative self-image because they do not trust, they cannot trust God. Now ask yourself if that is the preaching of Jesus Christ. Look at any one of his sermons. It is not the preaching of Christ, and I am convinced Christ would speak in the harshest terms against the self-esteem movement that is rife in the evangelical church. And this is one of the areas that needs reformation. 
And we need to share this reformation uh, with other people. So let's look at this progress into conflict uh, on, on a human uh, level. Well, we've already dealt with the human level. Let's go on to the spiritual level. James highlights an inner conflict with our flesh, verse 1. Verse 4, he speaks of the allurement of the world. Verse 7, he speaks of the need to resist Satan. And each one of those is in a mortal battle with God. When our hedonase, when our desires for pleasure or felt needs are warring within us, what are they warring with? Well, look at verse 5. It says, do you think the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The next verse talks about him resisting us. Okay? God's spirit wants to lure us away from this pyramid of needs, uh, from focusing on that, and to find our security met in Jesus, uh, to find anything that we have need in met in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he's wanting us to look. And when you ignore the fight, you get yourself into trouble. And he lists two ways that we can ignore the fight. Verse 2 says, you, yet you do not have because you do not ask. When we see people as the source of that pyramid of needs, then we're going to tend to focus on people rather than God. We're going to pray to people rather than God. You know, manipulate people, try to get things from people rather than God. Now, God has promised to supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus if they're true needs, right? But if our focus is on people providing those, then, then we're not going to be even praying. We're not going to be cast upon the Lord and dependent upon Him. So He says, you, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, the second way in which we can, second potential to ignore the fight is given in verse 3. Um, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, if we treat God as being a cosmic bellboy or a cosmic vending machine whose whole purpose in life is to make us happy and wealthy and, and stroked, then our prayers are going to be prayers that are just going to lead to frustration as well because God doesn't appreciate that. You know, he doesn't want us to be affirmed in our sinfulness. He wants us to learn to grow in our servanthood, in our stewardship, in our holiness. And so God's not going to give. Why? Because we're spending it on our own pleasures. We're feeding the monster of Hadonais. And ironically, ironically, it is as we embrace the cross of Jesus Christ and the difficult road to heaven that we find the most satisfaction and the most joy in life, and it's when we pursue after our own pleasures that we find the most dissatisfaction and the most frustration in life. That's the irony. It doesn't seem like it makes sense, but that's the way it works in life. Now, what happens next? Because gratification of desire is uppermost in our minds, we begin to lose God's way of thinking and we begin to think the way the world thinks. And so verse 4 indicates anything is possible. Adulterers and adulteresses... What is adultery? To me, it's just a logical choice for those who are driven by hedonis. Just a logical choice. If you buy into the ancient movement of hedonism, you can buy into any sin, you can justify any sin. Why not commit adultery? If self-gratification is our highest idea, why not? It makes perfect sense. James describes hedonism, self-love, the pursuit of needs as being friendship with the world. It's thinking like the world, and he says, God's not going to allow you to have any success in that. If you are the elect, he's not going to allow any success. And so he goes on, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
such a person is in a downward spiral. He probably doesn't even realize that God has abandoned him. I think of David. David was, for a while, in this pursuit. He had his fling with Bathsheba, and he obviously feels guilty about it. But rather than confessing his sin and finding peace with God and confessing to the person that he's wronged, his friend, his whole orientation for holiness is now toward men. Men are going to think I'm not holy. I'm desperate. I can't let anybody find out about this. Otherwise, they're going to think that I'm a sinner. And so he tries to hide it. He calls his friend back from the battlefield and he tries to get him to sleep with his wife. And he doesn't do it. He tries it the next day, getting him drunk, and he still doesn't do it. This guy says, no, how I can I do this when there's people who are suffering on the battlefield and they're risking their lives. I need to be back there on the battlefield. Now, that itself could have been an integrity check for David where he says, look, what a, what a rebuke this is. This guy's testimony is to me. But he didn't repent. And uh, he ended up murdering uh, his brother, uh, his, his, his friend. Well, he was a brother in the Lord. Uh, by exposing him deliberately on, on the battlefield. And it was not until he was confronted in a very bold, remarkable way by Nathan the prophet that David even realizes how far down he had gone and he cries out that famous psalm to God, begging God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. But he probably didn't even realize that the Spirit of God was resisting him at every step, had, had abandoned him in terms of uh, the comfort uh, of the gospel. And so verses 5 through 6 make it very clear the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And this in turn means that rather than being empowered in our battle against sin, we've got God himself resisting us. Man, talk about the self-defeating nature of self-seeking pleasure. God's not going to let it work. And so he says, or do, you not th do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's frustrating. It's hard enough to live the Christian life with Satan opposing us and our flesh opposing us and the world system opposing us, but to have God resisting you as well? well that's, that, that, that's a hopeless thing. And the God resists you because he wants you frustrated. He does not want you enjoying your sin. He's much more interested in your holiness than he is your comfort. So he's going to resist you. He's going to make you miserable. And it's when you finally cry uncle and say, okay, I give up, Lord. I've had enough, Lord. I'm willing to follow you, that the remedy begins to flow and we begin to make our way out of strife and frustration and into peace and joy. And, and, and David did that as well. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And he found that joy restored. But because the next sections are critical sections in their own right, I'm not going to preach on them right now. I'm just going to just, well, I guess I will sort of, but I'm just going to quickly go over them. We'll save them for later. But let's quickly look at some of the steps. Verse 7, therefore submit to God. He's saying start doing things God's way. Okay, God's way has already been outlined in the previous three chapters, but he says submit to it. Don't be kicking against it. Don't kick against the goads. Submit to it. Secondly, engage demons in spiritual warfare. And what encouraging words those are in verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. God has given to the believer all of the authority that he needs to successfully resist Satan. But it's only to those who are in a continual state of repentance. Everyday repentant, getting right with God, pursuing after holiness. Because if God's resisting us, I guarantee you, you're not going to resist Satan. You're not going to be able to. It's only in the state of repentance that you have that power over Satan. 
Third step is to use the means of grace that God has provided in order to draw near to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, what are the means of grace? Other things like prayer and Bible study and preaching of the word and sacraments and accountability and devotions and meditation and fasting. I mean, there's a number of ways that God loves to work through. And you say, well, why doesn't God just zap me? Because he didn't want to. Okay. He wants you to grow. He wants you to fight against these things. And uh, he delights in, in causing us to grow through the preaching of the word. And so when we're absenting ourselves from the preaching of the word, we're short-circuiting uh, sanctification. Fasting, you know, we've getting, gotten up against a brick wall. Fasting is one of the things that helps us to break through. And if we're not fasting, we're short-circuiting one of the means of grace. That's the way that we draw near uh, to God. But in reform circles, we speak of it as the means of grace. Bible memory, Lord's table, meditation, going to church. Okay, fourth, have a thoroughgoing repentance. Do not be half-hearted. Hate your sin. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's dealing with our actions, right? Our hands. Um, he says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's going after the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lament and mourn and weep. There's the emotions engaged in loathing our sin. Uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And so we need to ruthlessly go after our actions. We need to ruthlessly make sure we are not rationalizing our sin. We need to deal with our actions. And he says, when we humble ourselves and our pride before the Lord, he will lift us up. Praise Jesus. He will lift us up. And we can be encouraged by that. And the last step in your outline, it's not the last step in the Bible, but the last step in your outline is let God deal with other people. I think this is a critical step in conflict resolution. You cannot change other people's hearts, and you need to give up trying to change other people's hearts. It's just going to make matters worse. Okay, you focus on your own problems and let, the, let God, you can pray, you can present truth, that's not a problem, but constantly judging, constantly nagging, constantly trying to change other people's hearts, just going to get their back up and it's going to make them miserable and it's going to make you miserable. It just leads to conflict. And so, verses 11 through 12, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now, we're going to look at that on another Sunday, but I think it's pretty obvious how that kind of a judgmental spirit, you know, just gets the fires going of, of conflict once again. So trust God. He can change people. You can't. And once you let go and you just say, Lord, I'm just going to softly and gently present the truth, you're going to find you don't get bent out of shape and angry quite as much because you know it's not your responsibility to change their hearts. Your responsibility to present the truth and to present it gently and uh, kindly. And so the bottom line on conflict resolution is before you can deal with the outward conflict, you've got to deal and crucify those inward desires that are conflicting with the Holy Spirit. And so it's my prayer that God would give you a holy hatred, a holy revulsion for the hadenes that is within you, and that you would embrace the difficult road to heaven. It's as we embrace the cross that we find the greatest joy. Jesus said that he came to give us joy, and it was what? Those who keep his commandments. Give joy, fullness of joy. He says, I came that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. I mean, Jesus enables us to enjoy even the simple things of life. You know, the, the food that we eat, the houses we live in. He delights when we delight in the good gifts that come from him. But we need to do it. <clears throat> with a motivation of serving him. Because you can pray for the same thing from two 
<clears throat> totally different motivations. You can pray for a car with a motivation, Lord, uh, I think this would make me more efficient in taking dominion in this business or taking dominion for your, your sake. I'll submit to you and what you're going to enable me to do. But, Father, I want to use, I, I'd like to have a car to serve you. The other motivation is, <clears throat> Lord, I want to be one up on the Joneses. Uh, they've got a good, better car than I do, and I want to get that. Or uh, There could be any number of self-directed motivations. But when we pursue the cross and we follow after Christ, uh, we can find joy. Uh, Solomon did the opposite. He was driven by pleasure, and he was able to achieve every pleasure that people dream of. And what was the end result in his life? He says, therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. See, that's the irony. Pick up your cross and follow Christ. Crucify your flesh. You're going to enter into joy, satisfaction, meaning. Your life is going to have purpose. You're going to make a difference. You're going to be empowered. But you pursue after, I want this, I want that. I'm not going to feel satisfied unless I have this or that. And you're just going to be a miserable person. And you're going to make other people miserable as well. And so my admonition is to you is to choose to take up the cross and follow Christ. Amen. Father God, thank you for this passage. Father, it hurts sometimes to have our toes stepped on, and yet we want to be holy. And Father, if it takes the wounding of your word to make us holy, do the surgery, Lord, and cut out from our heart the hedonase that has been so deeply ingrained from the time that we were little kids. It seems like we've been brought up to pursue and seek after the things that we want. And if we want it, we're going to get it. And Father, I pray that you would put that aside from us and help us to seek after you, to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and just trust you to add all of these things to us as we seek to do what is our duty. Our Father, help us to be diligent uh, in our business, be diligent in our relations, in our conversation, all of the things you have given to us as a, a pursuing of your kingdom. Help us to be diligent. But Father, uh, may uh, we delight when you give and delight in you when you take away, because we know that you cannot be taken away from us if you are the center of our lives. And so I pray, Father, we would have the attitude of Job. The Lord is given, the Lord is taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.